0: Hello and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the role of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you enjoy this show, please tell a friend or colleague about it and help spread the word. If you want to also search for other episodes or learn about some of the other resources that are available to you, head over to TheConsumerVC.com. Thank you, Carlton Fowler, for the introduction to today's guests, Brandon Schwartz and Lawrence Cisneros. Founders of Drinksmith. Drinksmith makes the best cocktails ever bottled. I have to say, these are amazing. I tried the product a few weeks ago, and what they're building with Drinksmith is so innovative, and I really hope you all see that as well on this episode. We discussed their origin story and how they thought about making an amazing bottle for cocktails, how their business is becoming a marketplace, and how they think about collaborations. This is pretty wide-ranging. Without further ado, here's Brandon and Lawrence. Brandon and Lawrence, how are you both?
1: Great. Here in LA, trying to make it work. It's it's been fun. How you doing?
0: Doing well, man. Doing really well. Yeah, also in Los Angeles over here. So it's great to have some locals on the show. Would love to start from the very beginning. How did you two meet and what was your... Interests in the alcohol and beverage industries.
1: Well, Brandon and I met a long time ago in undergrad, and then uh, we both found our way up at USC. Him graduating a few years before me in the business school, and I went to law school. And we reconnected as I was in school, and he had been, I think, just sold his first company, his first brand, and so he had a you know a lot of experience in CPG. And you know, we loved going out and drinking, you know, cocktails and try to make drinks ourselves. And you know, we realized that there was a very huge gap in the industry between what you know what you could get at these bars that we love going to and what you can get at the store and all the troubles that we had making drinks ourselves and we kind of just started realizing hey like there's a highly regulated market maybe we could come up with a really cool product so we kind of put our heads together and uh, you know year after year uh, attack the problem and uh, here we are
0: that's awesome that's awesome so what do you thought about starting a company together. When you have two co-founders, how did you think about complementary skill sets and what Brandon was responsible, what Lawrence was responsible for? And and yeah, I guess those kind of early days, just for entrepreneurs that are interested in starting a business and having a co-founder, just what was your approach?
2: Yeah. For us, yeah. I mean, it really was complementary. Lawrence... You know, coming from the legal side of it, he was really able to identify where we could exploit, you know, certain white spaces. You know, there's a lot that's going on in the alcohol industry with the three-tier system and manufacturing and all the different licensing, you know, that you need to get in order to, you know, pull something like this off. A lot of it wasn't even really out there. To just like look up in a Google search, it was something that you really have to be an expert and have that legal background to be able to navigate. And then on my side, you know, I was a couple of years deep into CPG and the beauty business, you know, so marketing and product development. So it was easy for us to kind of come together and synthesize those two skill sets into into this specific product line. I mean, we both love cocktails, so it's you know there was that shared interest and vision. But we were able to really divide and conquer the business. So at this stage, you know, I'm handling more of the sales and marketing and Lawrence is handling you know finance ops legal I mean, as co-founders, though, you can imagine there's a lot of overlap and we're pretty much talking to each other, like probably too much, you know, every 30 minutes. We're like, there's like a conversation on text going and, you know, there's a lot to handle. So, but yeah, it's definitely a divide and conquer situation.
0: Got it. No, that makes a lot of sense in terms of your approach. And when you're thinking about starting a business, the reason why you would each want to start it with each other, that makes a lot of sense, just given both your backgrounds. When you realize that you, okay, you wanted to start Drinksmith, talk to me about the early stages of developing the technology. How you thought about just even you know the business structure and your approach to the uh, supply chain?
1: Yeah, I think that was probably one of the more interesting and exciting parts about the business for us, where we realized there was this huge problem where everyone loves fresh craft cocktails, there wasn't one at the store. All the other kind of like pseudo canned cocktails were really bad. Like there has to be a way. We were kind of thinking to ourselves there has to be a way, and we started researching for ways to essentially stabilize fresh citrus. And that's kind of the fundamental thing because you know, it's one thing to be like, Hey, let's just put fresh juice in a cocktail and put it in the store. The problem with that is that the citrus goes bad. One, if it's not refrigerated, and two, if there's no other kind of preservation technology. And so we started looking um, about, you know, six, seven years ago in the juice space. And a number of companies like Suja, Evolution Fresh had started kind of pioneering this new space of cold pressed juice that's stabilized with a high pressure or cold pressurization technology. And what that does is it basically puts 85,000 psi on the bottle and it gives you about six months of shelf life. So we immediately thought, wow, we need to use that technology that, you know, Coca-Cola and Starbucks are investing into these other cold-pressed juice companies, basically commercializing the technology in the juice space. And we realized we have to use that technology it's going to be perfect for our fresh bottle of cocktail product that we want to make. And then the next component was essentially figuring out the supply chain where everyone was trying to figure out how to get fresh juice into a distillery and move that through the three-tier supply chain, which currently would never happen, you know, up until that point. And so what we did different was we basically found a fresh juice manufacturing facility, one of the largest in North America. And so we've kind of flipped the table and flipped the script and basically got alcohol licenses at that facility to do everything all in-house. So it's the only you know, facility in the country that has the FDA certifications to handle fresh citrus and basically alcohol licenses to handle bulk spirits all in the same place. And so we kind of started realizing like no one's done this, but there are pieces in place that we can put it together. We can solve this in a really you know high end way. And in a way that's also very defensible, not to mention that the bottle we built, that you know, that would be kind of the linchpin to bringing everything together.
0: Yeah, so I guess part of your competitive advantage or your moat is actually your manufacturer about having, they're the actually only ones that are able to actually have licenses with distilleries and alcohol brands. That is that right?
2: There are licenses though. So it's tied to their location, but licenses underneath our company is part of the moat for sure. I think the biggest moat is definitely the patent on the bottle. And just, you know, there's a lot that went into that from the mechanism, that combines the two liquids, but then also, you know, different kinds of plastic resins that we had to experiment with that will go through the high pressure processing that we do. So it's it was a super nuanced approach on that front. The licensing, of course, is, is important because it takes almost 18 months to even get that licensing and it needs to be tied to a juice coat packer. You can't just get the license and then go search for a, a coat packer. So it's definitely a moat, but just wanted to tell you what i think our biggest mode is
0: absolutely (laughs) absolutely in terms of the actual bottle itself and what i find so fascinating about your business is that you don't actually produce any alcohol at least any alcohol yet if that's fair to say where really what you're doing part of it is curating these cocktail drinks into your super impressive to say the least bottle so folks are able to have fresh cocktails
2: yeah you nailed it i mean we kind of look at it like uh, every drink is its own production this is more lawrence's analogy but you know we've got the spirits company and if you turn a bottle over you can see the spirits company that we're using their logos there you know we pick a bartender who has experience you know with that spirits company usually you know and try and figure out a drink that we all kind of co-collaborate on so it's really fun in that regard and obviously like the opportunity to partner with you know lots of different brands is there as a goes from being like a US thing to, you know, reaching into like Europe or Southeast Asia.
0: Totally. And also I love that idea that you've done with, you know, partnering with bartenders or having bartenders create their own drinks and really own their own drinks through DrinkSmith. That's also really cool aspects of your business.
2: Yeah, that helps. So that one's huge for us. I think on the surface, like there's obviously this organic reach that they have, but um, we're able to also take our advertising and port it into their Facebook accounts. And so we go after their, you know, their page engagers, people who watch their videos, people, click through to their posts. That's been a really key element to you know to the go-to market strategy. And then also just like getting these bartenders on board is huge industry proof too. it's not like these people are, you know, just attaching themselves to anything. And they're involved too. Like all of them are diehard drinksmith, you know, fans and team members. So it's it's been pretty cool.
0: That is really cool. Talk to me a little bit about some of maybe the other early hurdles that you've had to go through with your business.
1: Yeah. I mean I would say you know, because it's been such a long, you know, development that, you know, for a lot of product-based companies, you have to have the product before you can get into the market and and then, you know, to be able to get investment, you have to have the product and be in the market and show certain results. And that's how a lot of you know, non-alcoholic you know beverages or even alcohol, it's like, hey, go get a proof of concept. And for us, we had this challenge where we had to raise the money in order to prove out the product and then raise even more money to go put it in the market to go prove out, you know, hey, are, do people even want these fresh bottle cocktails? What about the pricing? What about the positioning and all those kinds of things? Could, can we even put these, you know, manufacturing pieces together? And so, you know, that was probably one of the fundamental challenges that we had at the very beginning because i mean even to an extent now there's not a lot of early stage alcohol you know investors because generally it's a very legacy kind of business there's a lot of kind of incumbents in place it's kind of convoluted on a regulatory standpoint so not a lot of people understand it so to get the the capital in and have you know we basically had to show investors you know even years ago that yes there is a bit of risk that we're having to prove out the product we're having to prove out the manufacturing prove out all these different proof points even before getting to market and then having to show a bunch of things get to market but if we can do it there's a Huge potential in this space. We're going to have so much, you know, of a moat because we have spent all this time developing it from scratch and putting all these pieces together, all you know, proprietary and custom. That the upside was big enough to justify the early, you know, risk capital. Which so that was kind of just a, you know, long a long journey. But it, you know, I think it's definitely paying off now.
0: Yeah. What's really interesting too is you know I've had on investors that invest in food and beverage, and you know, one particular investor comes to mind where he talks about how if you develop a food and beverage product, and of course this is different because this is actually you know the actual beverage product where your product is the bottle, if that's fair to say. But it was interesting just hearing from this investor because he was saying like, if you really think about it, brand is the chief differentiator between other companies of food and beverage. And that is because you can contract manufacture out the actual product. But what's interesting about your company that I find fascinating is your product is actually the differentiator. And, you know, I know you have a patent pending for it, but that's the actual uniqueness. So I can understand as well, maybe why a beverage investor might not quite understand because of that system, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah, I think that's totally true. In the alcohol out- out- space, it's really been all about brand and like we're trying to innovate with your marketing. And I think up until this point, I mean, there's a lot going on in Ready to Drink, so I don't want to make it sound like no one's innovating. But, you know, we kind of feel like There was this, oh, we put a spice in this rum. Like it's innovation, you know? And it's like, eh, it's not really innovation, you know? Like coming from the beauty business and really kind of seeing the focus on not just packaging, but also like unique positioning on the product, whether it's an ingredient or whether it's hardware that actually helps you get that result that before and after, we applied that to alcohol. And we thought, all right, well, how can we actually make the best craft cocktail? And I was like, well, it's through a mix of different things. And mainly it's this bottle tech. So we knew that that in and of itself would be the core thing propelling the brand forward. It was being able to put all of that, all that good. And the brand came after that you know, like branding for us is almost an automatic, you know, any consumer good is in the business of fashion. You know, you have to look good and you have to look cool and you have to look on trend, be ahead of the curve. So luckily we've had a lot of experience on that front with, you know, developing cool looking brand. I mean, I hope you think it's cool. I'm sure there's some people out there who don't think it's cool, but we like it. And that was almost secondary to, you know, making sure that the product could really uphold the promise of the brand. Yeah,
0: you know, that makes sense. And I understand just to your point, why it would be really hard for investors to maybe even understand what you were building. Right, investors in beverage because they want to see um, go to market because as you said, it's a lot in the marketing. Whereas in your case, yes, it is in the marketing, but you actually have like a very real, you very real IP. You actually have a moat you have a lot of product differentiation in the bottle itself, which takes a lot of capital in order to make. So that makes a lot of sense on the R and D side. I know you touched on this a little bit, but would love to also dive into how you thought about brand and brand positioning after you developed the bottle. Yeah, so how we
2: thought of it. I mean, it's really. Been- and we kind of transitioned, you know, from a few different places. But, you know, fundamentally, we like this idea of putting people in control of their mixology, you know, putting people in the driver's seat and kind of turning them into a bit of a mixologist. And a lot of people love that twist and shake aspect of it. It's engaging, and it kind of makes you understand that there's something special happening here. So to that end, it was really about, you know, trying to turn them into the, you know, bartender mixologist, you know, and a drinksmith, if you will. So that's really how we went about coming up with the name, I think at this point, you know, people definitely kind of struggle for a second trying to figure it out, but that's kind of fun. The the wordplay on it, you know, the way we spelled it you know, it kind of gives you like a little bit of mystery, you know, like the no consonants and then the myth, M-Y-T-H at the end is kind of like our way of like nodding to how this has really never been done before. But then also like the, you know, the wordplay with actually, you know, becoming the the drinksmith or mixologist yourself. And then, you know, from there, we didn't really want to have like one cohesive, like homogenous looking brand because we wanted to really make each drink its own production, if you will. So we tried to create a template for our label that would have all of these, you know, trappings and elements that would create brand cohesion, you know, like the logo lockup and where the ingredients go. But then there's plenty of area on the label that we dedicated towards, you know, making illustrations for people or putting their images outright on the label, which we've been doing more lately. And then, you know, changing up the font of the um, you know, or the the graphic on the, the way the, the drink is named. So that's been a really fun process. And as we get more people involved, like they they really end up taking a lot of ownership over the product because they end up becoming you know a part part of the creative collaboration leading up to it. So that's been pretty cool.
1: And I would mention too that, I mean, it kind of like, you know, to, <laughs> the of discussion around being, have a mode and defensibility, you know, we almost have becoming this kind of platform in a product where people come to us, whether they're a bartender or a celebrity or a brand or a type of venue. And because we've kind of created this infrastructure, we're the only ones that can do it. You know, we allow for this kind of other brands and people to play alongside us in a very collaborative way. And it kind of makes it really fun where, you know, we can play with anyone in the three tiers of the alcohol industry in a cool new way. And you know, almost the Drinksmith kind of brand, it's almost kind of synonymous with fresh and it kind of it kind of is like the pr- most premium thing you could do in in our category and so it kind of created this like um branded platform in a product in a way
0: i think those are all like excellent points and thanks so much for sharing just how you think about it one thing that really stood out to me was that ownership degree when someone buys a drinksmith bottle of a cocktail that they actually have to twist and shake it and it's kind of a fun but also you know involving experience just reminds me a little bit of i think it was pancakes when they can actually sell like the full pancake formula and folks can buy pancakes and it'll taste exactly the same rather than selling pancakes. I think you have to add maybe sugar or flour to the mix. But the actual pancake mix that actually sells a lot better is the one where the customer actually has to add an additional ingredient to it because then they feel like they actually have ownership and they actually creating the pancakes themselves. It doesn't actually sell as well when you actually give them the entire thing. So I don't know, I think there's something there too, just the customer actually having to do something.
2: Yeah, 100% agreed. And some people even take the drinks and they use the drinks as a base, they garnish it, they'll dilute it, maybe put soda water inside of it. You know, people do all kinds of stuff with the drinks. I mean, they drink it out of the bottle, and put it over ice. So it really can become, you know, a bit of a, a palette for you to do some customization on. So we like that. Love it. Love
0: it. So what were some of the early growth levers that you use. And how did you approach, you know, retail and e-commerce? Yeah, the retail side
2: of it, you know, with the pandemic has definitely been challenging. You know, we had a ton of inbound interest from, you know, big name retailers. And when March rolled around and the pandemic started to really kind of rear its head, we were uniquely positioned with our Shopify site and a lot of the work that we've done on the legal and compliance side to be able to transmit the orders, you know, to retailers compliantly and then, you know, stocking them up with, you know, the right type of materials to do the ship shipping, insulated bags and gel packs. And so we, um, we kind of shot up after March. And in the last 10 months, we've done in a very limited geography too, because right now, most of our ads really just go out in Southern California and New York, but 1.9 million in consumer sales, you know, all shipped by just a couple of retailers. So that's been really um, exciting. On the retail front, you know, we are anticipating a retail launch closer to summer, you know, doing a test with one of the bigger retailers in California and just kind of our, our home turf here. And then expanding in the fall, you know, with a group of retailers. So that's, that's definitely in the plans. But of course, you know, need to, you know, kind of take it step by step. The e-commerce side has definitely been a lot easier being able to take a lot of the learnings that we have from, you know, previous ventures in the beauty business. And we're pretty adept with a lot of the D2C tactics that drive traffic to the site and convert. So yeah, at this stage, you know, we're, we're spending quite a bit on paid ads with solid return on ad spend. We do a bit in the affiliate SEO blogging. Obviously, there's the Influencer component. I mean, you know, we do paid ads on Facebook and Instagram, Pinterest. So there's definitely quite a lot. We do a lot on the site too. And we have a couple of new programs that we're launching. One membership program, you know, again, powered by our retailers. But you know, you can you can sign up for the membership at drinksmith.com. So this will be rolling out soon. And then as a bartender, you know, if you're out of work and you're looking for ways to kind of, you know, bring what you used to do behind the bar, you know, to beyond, you can actually submit a drink to us. This is Going live soon here. Uh, You could submit a drink to us and have your audience pre-order it into existence. So super pleased on that, and really excited to launch that. Some other stuff too. Well, I mentioned two things that you know perhaps
1: that we kind of overlook now is kind of just kind of core parts of the business. But one is kind of enterprise corporate happy hours. So we started getting all these inbound leads towards the latter part of uh, last year, and just companies, Google's and Netflix, and you know everyone in between saying, Hey, can I want to do? I have like you know fifty employees, and I want to make them happy. I want to send them drinks. We just started. so overwhelmed with inbound requests that we hired someone we got you know had a whole process that we were starting to get you know 30 inbound leads a day to do these corporate happy hours and that was just a great way for not only to us to have like a steady stream of kind of you know customers but also people trying it and they're paying their company would be paying for it and then you know they get to reorder uh, again later so that was a big uh, growth lever for us and then I would just mention lastly it was all the different drinks that we've been able to launch over the past year and we initially started out with five and then we launched you know one new one thereafter I think towards the middle part of the year. Um, if the sales for that day, which was like, you know, 3, 4, 5x what we had been doing previously. And so we kind of looked at ourselves like, hey, maybe we should do more of these like uh, limited release you know, drinks. And so we started kind of pumping out one, two, three a month at one point, because it would just, you know, put our sales on steroids. And it made it really fun and dynamic. It kind of showed off that kind of platform type dynamic that we could create and kind of showed everyone you know, what we're capable of doing.
0: I love that. I know when we spoke earlier, the corporate happy hour, I thought that was so interesting and innovative. And it makes a ton of sense in terms of, you know, corporations building community remotely, which is really hard to do. And you also being a contributor to that, which is really cool. So I know we touched on it before, but I would love to learn a little bit more about how you were able to successfully fundraise. I know you talked a bit about the challenges, how a lot of funds needed the product and market, but what was maybe some of the ways you're able to get over that hurdle?
1: I think one of the ways, you know, one was early on, even when we were really a young kind of company, we did a lot of outreach. I mean, we were just trying to, one knowledge, just trying to understand the business and just trying to, you know, put ourselves out there. Um, but it was, I think, really one having a lot of communication with people and a lot of times you know even from the first or the last two groups that came in one was Door ventures the group you know after that was Goat rodeo you know it was it didn't happen immediately it happened over a multi-month process and it didn't always come about like hey this is what we're doing you know we're closing you know next month and then everyone goes great it's more of hey it's you know initial introduction and then you know month after month after month or, you know maybe falling off and not, not falling off but just you know losing contact and then coming back again and then showing so much progress what we had done from the previous time of initially meeting them. And I think that's uh, was a really good way for us to basically build the credibility for ourselves and show people that hey yeah we are doing this and it is a bit ambitious but we are making progress and we're going to continue to make progress and that's what we you know have a track record of doing and that's what we said we were going to do it kind of so it kind of built I think a level of I think yeah traction with different investors and they I think you know are investing into obviously the opportunity but investing to us that you know we're going to keep pushing on and trying to figure out a way and ultimately we did
0: that's great that's terrific and I really appreciate you sharing with us you know some of the ways you're able to even keep in touch with investors and kind of keep them updated in terms of all your progress that you're doing. And that's great. So what is the process when it comes to introducing new flavors and creating different cocktails? I know now you are maybe bartenders reaching out or that's one of the ways that you build community with asking your audience, hey, what are some cocktails you would like to see? But I would love to know if there's other strategies as well that you have when it comes to introducing new cocktails.
1: Yeah. So one aspect is, you know, thinking obviously who the bartender is you know a lot of them have huge followings but even we're trying to introduce now Brandon mentioned earlier was kind of people who are in the celebrity world who are also in food and beverage for example like a Tom Sandoval who's a bartender on this show who has a tremendous following so you know launching a drink with him and kind of almost making it perhaps like a adjacent part of the show but there are even kind of drinks that for example we're working we're launching a new cocktail called the Jack rose with this product called Applejack which is from the distillery called the Co which is the first distiller in the United States and so kind of you know it's It's a a spirit that was drank, you know, during the Revolutionary War. No one's ever made a bottle cocktail from it. So, you know, there's all different kinds of dimensions, you know, how we're looking at, you know, whether it's someone who's going to get a big reach and, you know, target a huge audience to thinking things that are like, kind of like perhaps industry defining or, you know, we're for a while ago and we're, you know, working on basically a custom Cosmopolitan cocktail for the Cosmo out in Vegas and thinking, you know, how cool is that? That it's like, it ties in so nicely to the venue and the brand. So kind of trying to think of things that not only are great drinks and that are interesting, you know and interesting people but things that are very kind of like that you just go oh wow that's really cool and it makes a lot of sense on a lot of different dimensions
0: yeah what's really neat about your business is that it's kind of growing through partnerships which is pretty cool whether that's a partnership with a bartender partnership with the distillery for them making their own drinks so that's pretty fascinating what's one thing you would change about the fundraising process
2: yeah, it'd be great if there was just like, you could just drop your deck to like a website where everyone gets alerted. I mean, it's crazy to have to, it's what's crazy is like having to talk to so many people to find the one, the, the groups that are like, wow, no, this is perfect for us. And it's like, oh my God, I wish I would have talked to you like nine months ago. It was it's like, it's really heartbreaking to like, to like, not be as connected as other people are. You know, it's just like, yeah, I would say that it's just hard to find the. Re- there's still to this day, I mean, there's Crunchbase, there's PitchBook, you know, you subscribe to all these different, you know, companies' newsletters to try and get info. But still, it just seems like you know, even today, like we're, we talked to a couple of investors who are like, this is perfect for us. Like, we would have, where were you guys nine months ago or two years ago? And it's like, where were you? <laughs> it's like, we, didn't, we couldn't find you. Like, the- how could you, like, that's, that's been the more, I think that's been really like the, the heartbreaking part of it. And a lot of people see the vision. It's like, it's kind of binary. It's like, they're either like, yes, we see that this technology that you're building has a total addressable market that's global and you guys can become the cloud bar of the future. And which like also sounds crazy to other investors who are like, no, you need to temper your, your vision. And it's like, so you, you really find like it's binary like that. Some investors are like, no, we get it 100%. This is a hot area. And where have you been? And then others are like, we don't get it. And it's like, you know, finding those ones that get it. I wish it was easier. Yeah,
0: that makes a lot of sense. You know, I also deal with this too, just in terms of introductions. I've introduced entrepreneurs to investors and the investors love the companies. And they're like, ah, we're you're raising your A. We're, we're a C stage fund. Where were you like a year, two years ago? so like that's happened a few times and, and the founder's like god i like wish we had that investor on our cap table ah oh, they were so good so what's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally this question's for both of you
1: oh so i think one book professionally, i think I guess I think aligned a lot of stars for me was um, Zero to One by Peter Thiel. And I think we applied or at least I applied a lot of those principles of building this business. And, you know, I think it, it really kind of like this creative monopoly concept um, was just so like I guess North Star for us in creating this. And I think that was that was really helpful to kind of, you know, hear him, you know, lay it out. And then I would say from a a personal level, kind of business related as well as Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and kind of really just flipping the switch for me. I read it in law school, actually. And I was like, well, shit, I'm in the middle of law school here, but this book is making a lot of sense. And I really kind of started thinking differently and thinking about money and thinking how to, you know, assets and all these kinds of things. And it really kind of gave me a totally different framework, you know, for my life.
0: Totally. That's great. That's great. Yeah. We'll certainly add those two to the list. I don't think we've had zero to one come up a couple times and Rich Dad, Poor Dad, you're the first to say it, but I absolutely love that book. So, so, my final question to you both is what's one piece of advice that you have for founders that are currently building?
2: On my side, I would say I'd say focus on your product. A lot of people get caught up in trying to make a cool brand or or like becoming obsessed with some particular marketing tactic. The worst place you can find yourself is with a dog product and you're you're like relying on marketing and brand building. That costs a ton of money and a lot of time and a lot of expertise and a lot of different people. It's much better when you spend all your upfront time on the, the product or service that you're trying to sell and making that thing sell itself. If you're forgetting about that, then it's gonna be a tough road. You better have a lot of money and you better be an expert marketing person, salesperson. Yeah, that's my advice.
1: I would say, um, and this is something you know, kind of learned and you know, heard from Steve Blank in particular about you know testing and iterating. You know, fundamentally, like knowing if you're wrong, like knowing if the product is wrong, if the process is wrong, if what you're doing is wasting your time, is wasting other people's time, is wasting other people's money. And um, I think you know, being honest with yourself if you're going down an area that or for a product that just doesn't make sense. But it's it's also tempering that with, hey, we want to get to this goal. There's different ways and perhaps, you know, ways of getting there, but also being honest that perhaps the goal is wrong or that it's impossible or, you know, being very honest with yourself along the way, because I think that was one of the challenges for myself in terms of, you know, leaving, you know, the legal profession, you're like, Hey, this better be worth it. And, you know, we kind of always, you know, try to figure out different tells and different signs along the way, you know, is this too early? Is this before it's time Do we are not the right people for this is this the wrong product or the wrong way of doing it. And so I think that helps not only when you're communicating with other people that, you know, to invest in the company that hey you're your biggest doubter in a sense you know that then if you've convinced yourself because you are as honest with yourself about it you're able to i think speak to other people with more clarity many kind of help you know then come to your vision as well but it's only because you've been as honest with yourself about it
0: yeah i think that those are two excellent pieces of advice focus on your product and also be extremely honest with yourself in terms of what you actually want to do and, and also know if you're wrong i love that i love that well brandon and Lawrence, this has been so much fun thanks so much for your time All right,
1: much appreciated. Thank you for having us.
0: And there you have it. Thank you so much, Brandon and Lawrence, for coming on the show. That was a lot of fun. You're also welcome to follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, folks.